Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. You're going to love that clean open. 
and we spoil movies tonight on the show, the third in our series on the films of Zhang Yimou with his 2002 film, Hero. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. Friend of the show, Ben Lott, has written in with his blot spot. I've got a rebound on Raise the Red Lantern. I love the intrigue and the complexity of the relationships in Raise the Red Lantern. I struggled a bit, though, because I kept waiting for Song Lian to figure things out and get the upper hand. However, it seems this isn't quite that kind of film. It's fascinating how the heavy emphasis on tradition is manipulated by these women in order to use the master to get what they want. My biggest problem was just the end, which was a tad unsatisfying. Your rank 73, my rank 157. You left out that one part, though. <laughs> which part is that? The part where he's right in the middle where he says, plus it was really boring. Oh my God, I totally agree with Pete. Bore, 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 snooze. Why'd you leave that out? <laughs> Uh, that was uh, apparently invisible ink only for you to read. <laughs> nice try, buddy. You don't, <laughs> you don't know stuff. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. So my trailer is, uh, is a film, you know, I have a hunch it's not going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> it, it It's a film called The Black Coat's Daughter. It originally was made, IMDb listed, as a 2015 film. Wow. That's right, 2015, where uh, because it premiered at T- uh, Toronto International Film Festival um, in uh, in September 2015, and then it played at Fantastic Fest and uh, at the Torino Film Festival in Italy. And it, it kind of kept going through all these festivals all through 2016, having finally a limited release uh, this March. And... Um, and the reviews, I mean, the ratings that it's had on IMDb are pretty low out of, you know, not quite 3,000 people have ranked it. And it's only 5.4 out of 10, which says it probably is pretty bad. I don't know if that's why it played in the festival uh, circuit for so long, um, you know, or if it just hasn't had enough of a, a viewer viewership to give it a higher rating. But, you know, I think it looks like an interesting film. The story of the Black Coat's daughter is two girls must battle a mysterious evil force when they get left behind at their boarding school over winter break. It looks really creepy. It's got all of the stuff that uh, that works well for uh, a, an interesting horror film. It just looks super creepy. It's got an interesting cast of uh, faces. Emma Roberts is in it. Lucy Boynton, uh, plus people like Lauren Hawley and James Remar pop up. Um. It's got that vibe of just like that, uh, that kind of cold. Everything, everybody kind of just seems slightly off, sort of thing. And and I like all of that. I think it looks really uh, interesting in that regard. But you know, the story doesn't over uh, over excite me. It just is like, eh, okay, it's kind of interesting. Uh, and then I saw the 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 star rating on IMDb, and you know, we always hesitate to kind of looking at that sort of stuff. But at the same time, five point four is relatively low on their scale, and so. <laughs> I was like, oh boy. Um, but Oz Perkins, who uh, is the the writer director of this film, um, he's uh, also been an actor and uh, and has written things that uh, I'm trying to remember what he's uh, written. Uh, just a bunch of these other sorts of horror movies. I'm trying to think. I think it was acting where I might have uh, seen more of him. Like he popped up in Legally Blonde. And he popped up in uh, Six Degrees of Separation and 
Uh, I mean, geez, all, going all the way back to Psycho 2, where he played young Norman. It's kind of funny how he's just kind of had this uh, off and on uh, uh, relationship with Hollywood. Um, this is, it looks like it's going to be his first, um, his first film following up uh, or followed up by I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, which was a 2016 film that, uh, you know, I don't know if that one actually got a release in 2016 or not. I think it did. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about this one. It looks like an interesting story, but it just might suck. What did you think of it? Oh, I think you know. <laughs> I think first of all, let can we not uh, scary, at scary, least scary. comment on the oh shut it. You can we not at least comment on the parallels between this film and the film last week that you chose for your trailer? Do you have a thing for like girls in the schools that are really creepy? Is that what we're doing now? Is that anything? I guess so. I guess so. I honestly don't even remember what trailer I picked last week. Are you serious? I'm serious. What did I pick? <laughs> It was the the Colin Farrell and and oh Nicole the beguiled Kidman. right the beguiled yeah 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 and, and, no, then, same, and then a little bit before the that I, a little bit before that I picked the one of the girl of the veterinarian school raw yes that's right raw that's right that's right no I don't know well, what's going on with you I've but I, right yeah I feel like you need some support I it's a cry for help <laughs> this trailer is a cry for help I I think it looks uh, super super creepy I did you know I I hear you your hesitation but I'm trying to cultivate and you'll see from my trailer pick I'm trying to cultivate a new desire to and and a uh, a, a willingness to adapt to more horror in my life. I'm trying to understand the benefits of it culturally, and I want to see more of it. So I was actually pretty intrigued by this trailer. I thought it looked damn creepy, and and uh, the it it was kind of nonsensical. Like I didn't get walk away with a sense of of too much of a sense of story. Uh, but um, but I did like the atmosphere. I liked the tone, the visual tone of the film. I, it, it looked very much kind of, it had kind of a Silent Hill vibe, you know, the game. Uh, and I, I liked that. I appreciate that. Um, and so I'm, I'm willing to give it a shot. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot like on a Sunday morning about 1030 on a very small screen. <laughs> Here's the thing about movies like this is I can find it very easy to watch bad horror movies because they just, uh, you know, they're still entertaining to watch. So even if it is a 5.4, I probably still will get some enjoyment out of it. So there you go. Uh, but yeah, it, it is going to have its limited release March 31st, finally. And uh, so uh, we'll be able to catch it uh, then and chat more about it. My trailer, Andy, is, uh, you know, I'm like I said, I'm trying to cultivate a, a love of horror. We'll see how that works. It's called The Bad Batch. It's from writer-director Annalili Amirpour. Uh, it stars... Uh, it, just check out this cast. Oh, I know. Jason Momoa, <laughs> Aquaman, coming up. Uh, Keanu Reeves, we know John Wick. Uh, Giovanni Ribisi. Oh, dear God for the unobtainium. Uh, Diego Luna. Oh, Diego Luna. So we got some Rogue One. Uh, we've got uh, Jim Carrey. What? Jim Carrey. Uh, Suki Waterhouse. What? What? This cast is amazing. And uh, it it is the story. It th- now now the story. It is a dystopian love story in a Texas wasteland set in a community of cannibals. Would you have put those things together, Andy? Would I you? would never. <laughs> the cannibals and the cast. 
It's bananas. This is a crazy trailer. It's like Mad Max, but they actually eat each other. Uh, it is. It, it's kind of. It's got a grindhouse vibe to it. Uh, it looks like Keanu Reeves plays this uh, sort of cult leader. Jason Momoa is all tatted up. He's got a. It's very. You know, he he looks pretty rugged, uh, but he always looks pretty rugged. Who are we kidding? I think it has a really uh, interesting visual style. It's probably not going to be great as a film like yours. I mean, it's a coming in at about a six on on uh, IMDb, but I'm going to check it out. I don't know anything from Anna Lily Amirpour. She uh, has only done the, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. No, she's done a lot more than that. She's written a, uh, and directed, I think, about 11 films, it looks like, on IMDb, uh, but I haven't seen any of them, and so I, I don't know what to make of, of her stuff. Have you seen anything else from her? I don't think so, but but the name is bunch of shorts. Yeah, the name is is very familiar for some reason, but I have not seen any of her stuff. Um, uh, it's interesting though I, that uh, uh, a girl walks home alone at night was a short first before she made that into a feature. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm curious about it. Um, aside from the fact that I I love her name, but I I just think that this looks super cool um, and. When Keanu Reeves popped up in the trailer, totally threw me because it just, it looks so against type of, of kind of what he's been playing for so long. And the character has such a great look. And it was like, oh, this is so exciting to see Keanu Reeves doing something like this. So I, I can't wait to see him totally. in the role. I, uh, d- disappointingly, I wish I could tell you when you will be able to see him in the role. I don't know. It, it hit uh, in 2016, it hit Venice, Toronto. September it hit Fantastic Fest. Uh, there, I, I don't have any release date for uh, 2017 for this film more broadly. So keep an eye out for it. It looks like something. I, it's worth checking out the trailer. So go to the site nextreel.com and and check out the trailer on this film because it's 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 crazy. It's crazy. Totally is. Is the sword the only answer, Andy? A soldier with no name. A warrior with supernatural skill and no fear on a mission of revenge against the army that massacred his people. Hero Andy 2002-ish, directed by uh, Zhang Yimou. Uh, it's written by Li Feng, uh, Wang Bin, and Zhang Yimou. Uh, stars Jet Li. Oh, Jet Li. Action hero superstar. Uh, Tony Leung, uh, Maggie Chung, Zhang Ziyi, uh, and Donnie Yen. Oh, digging Donnie Yen. He was great in Rogue One. Oh, yeah. That's, those are the people. This is the story. It's actually, this is a thing I didn't know, Andy. Did you know that this was based on a true thing? Or a, a true 2,200-year-old story? from Chinese history. Did you know that? I did because um well, one, it sounds like it when you when you watch it. It's got <laughs> a big prologue and a big epilogue that pretty much makes it sound like uh you know, this is a, a true story. So, I I yeah. kind of was like, "Oh, I guess this is a kind of a, a truthful sort of thing." And I had actually seen another film that was kind of about this by Chen Kaige called The Emperor and the Assassin. Um, which uh, is a just a, another just beautiful film that actually happens to star Gong Li, who we had been talking about. But that's just another fantastic film that happens to kind of be uh, about this uh, story. I mean, it's a little different to take on the whole thing, but 
Yeah, so I, so I I guess I had kind of gone into this knowing it. Although I don't think I went into Hero knowing that it was this story. Yeah, I you know, I think I'm I'm in the same place as you. I I went into it just remembering how beautiful it it is and frankly after last week's uh snoozathon uh, Ouch. that gorgeous moving Ouch. moving wall of color. Oh god. <laughs> Fie on thee. I <laughs> Come on. You have to admit, this one moves a little bit faster. I'm gonna, you better watch it or I'm going to blow a whole bunch of yellow leaves at you. <laughs> the dust in my eyes, Andy. <laughs> dust in my eyes. Uh, I really uh, enjoyed this film. I... I I think there are there are some of those weird like suspension of disbelief problems that I have with it, but it's beautiful. Uh, it, it is you get that same just fantastic use of color. It reminded me so much of judo, except for the the silks that were blowing around were all being worn by these people, and I think they're about the same length uh, as the ones in judo. I, I think the color was captured beautifully. It was uh, I love the use of color as a visual uh, indicator of where we are in the story. Um, you know, I, I found it just fascinating. And of course, I am a sucker for the wire work. I love it. I love these wuxia films that, that offer us that visual treatment. I think it's fantastic. There are people who feel very much the opposite. I don't understand those people, but I deeply enjoy this film. I had a great time. We watched it as a family movie night, and uh, it was, uh, everybody felt the same. It was just wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I really, I really enjoy this film. I don't love it as much as Raise the Red Lantern, <laughs> but Ugh. but I do really enjoy this film. It's a, it's a just a a, a feast to to uh, to watch and just you know let it uh, kind of wash over you. And uh, just the the just the whole story, I think, works so well. I always find it um, it lags a little bit in the second act for me. Uh, but that being said. It still is just overall just such an enjoying uh, enjoyable thing to uh, to take part in, um, but you know it. I had I was not very familiar with wuxia and this whole um, this type of um, uh, just kind of this martial arts sort of film, which is really kind of like uh, I think uh, you know lo- looking at it on on Wikipedia, it says it's a genre of Chinese fiction concerning the adventures of martial artists in ancient China. Although wuxia is traditionally a form of literature, its popularity has caused it to spread to diverse art forms such as Chinese opera, manhua, films, television series, and video games. It forms part of popular culture in many Chinese-speaking communities around the world. Um, it's just, the films are so fun. Um, and what I think really makes it such a treat is is seeing all the wire work and everything that they did that I really fell in love with back in Crouching Hidden, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which came out uh, in 2000. Um, and I know it had been around before that, but that was kind of my first experience with it. And so it's just, it's so fun to see how it, uh, how different directors kind of use it in these films. And it's just, it's gorgeous to watch. Um, now, here's an interesting little uh, tidbit for you. Did you know that the earliest wuxia films, they go back to the 20s? I didn't realize that uh, they had been making them for so long. And in the you know films like uh, that the Shaw Brothers had done and King Hu, um, they had been using wire and trampoline um, acrobatics plus sped up camera technique all, uh, all through the whole period when they were doing them. So 
I find it interesting that this sort of stuff had been going on for so long. And I mean, I had seen martial arts films before, and um, but never had I seen this sort of stuff. I think I'd seen probably the trampoline no. stuff where you see the guys flying through the air, but I don't think I'd ever seen wire work until like the 2000s. So um, no, and and I think there's there are critics who and and purists who would argue that wuxia, it, it as it gains popularity, is not technically a martial art. Right? It's closer to a dance. And in in fact, there's there's no real hand to hand stuff. This is all weapons in this film in particular, and so there are people who are pretty adamant about that um, that it's not. But I had I I did read one critic who said that who, who tried to make the case that wuxia uh, was a the the way that these martial arts films had adapted to the video game craze, trying to make the 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 flight look more like a video game character. Which obviously doesn't sit right just on the surface, but then when you go back and, and hear what you're saying, that these things have been around since the 20s, uh, no, obviously there's something else to it. Yeah, absolutely. The funny thing is that, um, you know, people in the West have tried making uh, um, wuxia films and really done a poor job. I mean, Ang Lee, I think, is one of the people who who probably kind of uh, got away with it because of his uh, Asian heritage. But for the most part, it's not something that um, Westerners have been really able to succeed with, except, oddly, Kung Fu Panda, <laughs> that franchise, <laughs> which I think is so funny because it's just such a hugely successful uh, series. And they kind of uh, were admirers of the genre and they wanted to kind of create this uh, this magical thing in those films. And and people in China really say that that is actually <laughs> a great contribution to the art form, which of all films... That's our grand export. That's <laughs> like... And I love those films. I mean, they're really fun to watch. You're but, welcome, China. <laughs> it's just so funny. Oh, yes. Well, that's wuxia for you. You get... <laughs> You give us Zhang Li, Zhang Yimou, we give you Jack Black. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my goodness. Remind me to wear my Kung Fu Panda t-shirt uh, when I go. Yes. That'll be yes, a indeed. for everybody. <laughs> it's a little tight. Uh, uh, you know what? I think an interesting, uh, interesting mark on this film is the is I'm trying to parse how his politics have changed. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about Raise the Red Lantern and the, the politics of, of Zhang Yimou and what he was saying about the period of the 1920s. And here he's, he's taking uh, a step way, 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 way back to the Warring States period uh, and, and looking through the lens uh, at, at this period of grand uh, civil war. And the whole question that this poses is, uh, is it right to fight for it, to to give up the fight in favor of authoritarianism if it stops the fighting and unites the country or is it worth continuing to fight to resist authoritarianism uh, i find that a really interesting um, statement that he's making because the the first couple of films that we looked at are very intimate right they're they're intimate kind of displays of the people and the houses and as a reflection of of the government and the state and this is very much looking at the state in a period that was you know formative for china how well do you think he you know does does this film resonate for you as a political statement when you think about it like that or is it is it really just better left to uh, look at the fancy colors and the sword. Well, it's, I, I think it's really an interesting point. And I, I think there's a couple things about that. One, um, 
you know, there were critics who actually uh, felt that the film was advocating autocracy, and they felt. I think it was uh, the vil- the person who reviewed it in the Village Voice who uh, said that it had a cartoon ideology. And it was justification for a ruthless leadership uh, comparable to Triumph of the Will, which I thought was a really interesting comparison. I was like, wow, I hadn't yeah. gone that far with this. I mean, I actually really liked the the whole concept and everything. One of the things that I think was so interesting is because they um, – apparently there's this translation uh, difficulty with this whole concept of uh, – I don't know how you say it – Qian Sha. I, you know, me and China. Hey, you're you're better than me. They didn't tell me. Well, I guess I guess. <laughs> Jin Chao, I, I guess. Yeah. Literally, it, it translates as "under heaven," and it's a phrase that kind of means the world. Um, and the way that it was translated in in the U.S. release was "our land." Interesting is that the king of Chin is that he is you know his he's warring to unite the people and the tr- the way that it's translated is our land as if he, you know he's his goal is to kind of bring china together but there's this this idea that that what it is is he's he's uh you know trying to create peace under heaven is kind of the, the one way that it could be interpreted as if you know this whole thing is like bringing uh bringing like helping end the war and finding a way to unite people not just here in china but really kind of as a as a global thing and just find find peace and it's an interesting way to look at just kind of this, the way that this word translates and or or doesn't translate very well because there are words like that that just don't have as clean a translation and it's like is it is it really about this guy who's trying to just create this this one country to kind of dominate as like a Hitler sort of thing, like that uh, Village Voice reviewer? Or was it really mm-hmm. meant to be kind of, I, I have this vision of, of um, bringing everybody together and finding a way to create peace in the world? And I, I really like that. I think it's an interesting look at how translations can really change how you read a film. And I didn't have that reading at all. I really had kind of the one land, let's unite China and be this dominant force sort of reading on it until I read about this translation. I think that I, I think that makes you a snowflake. Doesn't that make you a snowflake? <laughs> I am a delicate snowflake. Because you're so optimistic and happy. Am, right. You're a delicate snowflake. I think because the challenge, the other side of that is, is you know, the period that this was depicting, the Warring States period, this was a, a, a time of, you know, wars. But the wars were, were predominantly until the end where there was just great upheaval and destruction by the people uh, and of the people. Much of this period was, uh, you know, made up of wars between hired armies, right? They were professional armies, and they didn't really impact the people. In fact, the people uh, were actually, it, it was a period of great sort of cultural progressiveness, right? They, that they uh, This was the period of the birth of the 100 schools of thought, right? Taoism, Confucianism, legalism, they all come out of this period. There was a strong economy, and in, in reality, uh, Qin Shi Huang, it, you know, this dictatorship that ensued ends up, uh, you know, he creates a police state, uh, one China ends up, you know, uh, ending Creative and philosophical development. So, as as inspired as the one land under heaven kind of mantra is, the reality is he did end up really putting his foot on the neck of of a lot of uh, progressive sort of ideology um, for the sake of unity. and And so, I think that is what the that is sort of at the crux of the 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 question of this film is you know was was that okay? Uh, because it ends up we we got one big China. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting that you, you know, you, the, you brought this up as, you know, has Zhang Yimou really kind of changed his political viewpoint and his ideologies here? And it does kind of feel that way. It's, it feels like his earlier films were how uh, the, the political system in China was really crushing individual voice. And now, uh, 10 years later, he's making this film, and it really feels like that, you know, we worked hard to create this one China and we're all in it together sort of thing. And it, it seems like... It's almost like, uh, yeah, let's let's just kind of go along with the system because it's this big, massive thing, and and we're a part of it, and you know we need to help keep it this way. It's it is kind of feel like there is this shift in him, yeah, right? Because I mean, those earlier films were looking at a period where he, I mean, he's making films right out of the cultural, you know, the sort of Chinese Cultural Revolution. He's he is definitely, you know, inspired, I think, by uh, a different sort of worldview. And I think this film is the result of a shift. And I, you know, I enjoy watching it maybe for, you know, thinking about his perspective change even more than than just what it represents on screen. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, really. But it's interesting, though, because you look at uh, Zhang Yimou and kind of what he's always saying about his films. And, oh, I'm not saying any of that stuff. I'm just telling a story. And this does take such a shift in ideology that it's like, well, maybe he is just... Uh, just telling these stories and he's letting people kind of uh, read into it what what they want and he's just kind of focused on this is a really interesting tale so who knows maybe <laughs> i don't know i'm a pretty firm believer though i'm a pretty firm believer that every character in a film uh, you know has embodies its creator in some way shape or form right i mean this is it, it they are mirrors of in in some way of what we want the world to see about the the you know about itself and um, and so I, I don't know. I, I, I still kind of stand with the idea that he's he's not able, he's not in a position to make a statement about his works because of some, you know, historical challenges that he's had with the Chinese Film Board, etc. I, I think what we'll really be able to see is when we come back together and talk about next week's film. Uh, <laughs> you know. Does does next week's film stand a uh, you know make a trend? Does next week's film answer the question why yeah. was the king trying to unite everybody? <laughs> yes, because I think Andy, we know you and I both know it's because of the dragons. Exactly, he knew he was a smart <laughs> king. <laughs> What's really interesting, actually, is I think Qin Shi Huang is responsible for uh, for the Great Wall. Right, that's that's when the wall went right. up at the cost of you know a million builders' lives. I mean, it, it was it, it's this is uh, maybe the Great Wall is actually the sequel to Hero, and we didn't even know it. <laughs> Let's talk about the script, can we? Because the script is kind of complicated. Feng Li, Bing uh, Wang, and Zhang Yimou. Uh, the the way the script is constructed. It ends up sort of looping in on itself, right? The the whole story is about Jet Li's character. He he comes to the king to tell of his uh, conquest so that he can get closer, closer, closer to the king. And every time he tells of a conquest, the king lets him get a little bit closer. And it, it turns out through the telling of these stories, uh, the these this this fable unravels, and we learn that it turns out Jet Li is actually uh, you know an assassin himself. Um, how does the script work for you? The structure of the script. You know, upon uh, upon watching it this go around, it it had little hints of uh, Harakiri, a fantastic film in which 
somebody comes to tell their story to uh, to a particular character, and as they tell the character this story, it relays this situation that is about to happen between the two of them. And so there was a lot of that, plus a lot of Rashomon, uh, which uh, I understand mm-hmm. that uh, Zhang Yimou referenced as a, uh, a film that uh, he was inspired by because of the way that you get the different stories. And you and we as the viewers get to kind of watch these different stories unfold as first we have Nameless telling the story of, of how he came to be there. Then you have the emperor kind of saying, well, no, I think you're lying. This is what I think happens. And then you have Nameless going, okay, you're right, but this is where you're wrong and kind of uh, retelling certain parts of it. Um, it's interesting to see it play out that way. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those stories where because it's not, I mean, Rashomon, I think, is just such a genius concept because you have the same story being told from different people who were involved in that particular story, the thief and the the woman and the uh, the man as these as these uh, people have heard the various takes on this this crime. And the perspectives, I, I think the, the individual perspectives, is are the, that's what makes that film so strong. With this film, you're getting lying. Uh, you're getting these lies that, you know, Nameless is kind of doing this, trying to pitch a story that doesn't work. And then the Emperor kind of, it's almost like he kind of takes a crack at it to see if he can do it. And then Nameless is like, well, no, not quite. This is really how it went. And... Um, yeah. And it's interesting because what ends up happening is we end up seeing a lot of stuff that it's like, okay, so is this a real thing or is this not a real thing now? Because now I'm not quite so sure anymore of what was really real. And so, and I think that's a real challenge in the film too, right? Because I think it it it's it it's too clever by half, right? Because you have them uh, coming. He tells a story. You learn he's telling a story. We hear another interpretation of story, and eventually, it's not even a, an interpretation of a story. It's not even something that we know the characters are telling. There's one of these great fights that is actually just imagined by the king, uh, and uh, I think that uh, um, at at some point that went too far for me in the narrative in so far as I loved that sequence. Like that sequence is my favorite in the entire film. Uh, I I don't like how they got there. And I think you have to, like, the the effects are so good that if you love this film, it's because you buy into the the look of it and the, the journey of the physicality of it in spite of some of these kind of narrative hoops you have to jump through to to make sense of it. Yeah, right. And that's, I, that, and that, I feel like that probably is the area in the film where things start to slow down a little bit for me because I feel like we're, we're seeing a lot of stuff play out and it's like, well, I don't, you know, this isn't even really a real thing anymore. <laughs> and, and, and I, I think yeah. that's some of the difficulty of it is, is having these different stories. I mean, we watch Nameless um, battling snow in front of the uh, Chin army uh, like three times in you know in three different slightly different ways and yeah. um, and it it can get a little like okay I, I already saw him fight her and I understand now there's different subtext behind the fight because of the way that the story has shifted but but at the same time yeah it's it's like uh, some of this stuff I mean like you said as beautiful as it is, um, it's just a fictionalized version of of what's happening, or a guess, really. And I think it's it's is it the lake sequence that you're talking about that that you love so yeah, much? Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, yeah, the whole thing. It's like 
it's it's just a, a you know a speculative story by the king, right? <laughs> right, right. It's a it's a complete. Uh, there there is no justification for having it in in the in in his head in the film. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And uh, and yet it is in terms of sort of the ballet of it. It's the most beautiful sequence for me in the in the film. Yeah, absolutely. It's really a stunner. What about Zhang Yimou as a director of this piece? I mean, did you learn anything uh, watching this? Did you make any connections to his prior films? Uh, I just, you know, I mean, he really holds on to a lot of the way that he likes to structure his films. Formal shots, long takes, incredible colors, um, just image compositions. You know, you've got one man on this incredibly vast staircase. Uh, you've got this just shots with thousands of, of soldiers in them. The way that the fights unfold, you've got that incredible black and white mind's eye of the fight that you have. Um, images like the slow motion shot, which just blows me away when uh, Nameless is is heading to attack Sky, and his face is just hitting those those um, you know uh, lines of water that are kind of falling. And just kind of hitting them as it's just going through them. It's just so beautiful. Um, but I think one thing that I, I learned from him, and I, you know, I've heard something similar to Akira Kurosawa, another incredible uh, uh, filmmaker from Asia, who would you know stop shooting because the clouds in the sky were not right. And I think this happened on Ron when he was making that, where he he kept coming back day after day, and the the clouds weren't right, and so he would leave. And it took, I can't remember how long before they were finally able to shoot the scenes that he wanted because the clouds finally looked right. It sounds like Zhang Yimou has some of that tendency in the way that he uh, directs. He's very, very specific about things that he wants. For example, we just were talking about the fight up at the lake. He only would shoot the shots where you could see the lake when that lake was perfectly still like a mirror. And that only happened two hours a day because otherwise the currents would kind of uh, would just create ripples all across the whole lake. And it was only like from 10 to noon. And so they had to get there every day at like 5 a.m. so they could get everything set up so that by 10 a.m. they were rolling on these these incredible shots. And it took them like three weeks to get all the shots that they needed because of the amount of time that uh, uh, that they had to work in. And um, likewise... Uh, with the leaves, with these incredibly uh, yellow leaves in this forest when um, our two uh, women are fighting in their incredible red robes. And just these these leaves are incredibly yellow. And he had people sitting in the forest waiting for the leaves to change. And when they started to change, they would gather all the yellow leaves. And then they would sort all the yellow leaves. And they had different like uh, sections for the different types of yellow that they had. And they organized everything so that when they did this fight, they could blow these leaves at the two women with these uh, blowers just so they could you know get these incredible swirls of the leaves. And then when they would cut it, they would gather all the leaves again and they would clean them off and resort them so they could go at it again. It's just like an incredibly meticulous nature that he had. And he really pushed uh, to make his vision come to life. Um, what I heard him say is, as a director, you have to be very determined to get what you want. Um, but he said you also have to be very flexible uh, when when appropriate. And so I think 
stuff like this, it's clear that he's very determined to get what he wants. But I think the key is that there is some flexibility in stuff that that we have in the film. It's just might not be this sort of stuff, but I feel like there are other scenes where he's probably allowing some of that flexibility to come through. So I, I think that's a, a critical thing about him is that he has both of those things there, even though it's the determined stuff that I think really shines through. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, the other piece of it is you can't underestimate or underscore enough his, uh, again, his affinity with the camera. I mean, he's just such a strong uh, visual filmmaker, not even in, in terms of, you know, the setup uh, of the these incredible leaf shots, right, the the beautiful thing, but just in terms of where he places the camera, the, the, uh, the way he captures faces in the frame, uh, the way he captures the stunning size of the armies that he's dealing with the uh the um, it is uh, i really felt uh, a sense of that sort of grounded uh, ability with the camera in this film just like i felt in both judo judo and, and raise the red lantern that i could see just straight across this is a guy who really understands his tool Let's talk first shot, last shot. The first shot, I guess if you look at it as kind of a history piece, the first shot is a map of China and the seven warring states on the map. Um, after a whole bunch of on-screen text kind of detailing the history of the period, setting us up for heroes on both sides of the war, all of that. If you if you kind of take that history aspect out of it and you look at the actual film itself, the, the first shot is a medium close-up of horses' hooves pounding the ground from just masses of of uh, the, the riders who are soldiers for the king of, of Qin. And the last shot, uh, again, technically, it's the, the panning shot across the Great Wall of China with the epilogue text detailing the hero's burial for the nameless assassin, how the king of Qin went on to unite the country and build the Great Wall, and how the Chinese people today still call it one land. But not really because that was an, an anglification of uh, bad bad translation. Right. I, I guess the uh, alternate uh, ending, the alternate last shot is uh, it, the, you know, with the epilogue, we have the uh, long static shot of the king sitting in his throne in, in his empty palace. Um, I, I guess I kind of prefer that one. I mean, the history, the history one is just obvious, right? It's a map of China yeah. divided, and at the end, it's like, now he's succeeded and he's created this great wall to protect his people. It's just, you know, yeah. it, it feels like a pretty obvious thing. That's why I think the other one's a little more interesting. I do, too. I, and so when we're looking at the horses hooves pounding on the grasses with the riders and then ending on this lonely king in his throne room, uh, what does that tell you? I, I think it just says a lot about the, the nature of the war and uh, really kind of what this king is seeking is, you know, all the fighting going to lead to uh, to the respite and, and kind of the, the unification that he's looking for. And it's you know, one of those things where I feel like in the end it does, but it's one of those things where you get a sense from the king himself when he's talking to uh, Nameless about broken swords uh, realization about what the king is up to and that he's trying to do this. And he's like, finally, someone understands me. It's almost like that, that same sort of thing where the king had to become like the worst person imaginable to kind of destroy all these these uh, people fighting only to bring the peace that that and the unification that all these people needed. And it really leaves him in a place where, you know, he did it, but now he's kind of left alone because of the amount of destruction he had to cause. 
Is that redemptive? I guess it's one of those things. Like, do you look at it as redemptive because the way that he was able to unify? Maybe, uh, you know, even though it, it had to come from a lot of destruction. I mean, it all goes back to all those critics of the film who have yeah. these issues, right? Or, or is it redemptive because it, it, it's redemptive for the critics who, in the end, you know, you have to look at the at the, the cost of, of this great reign of authoritarianism. And in fact, he is left alone. Right. The story thematically ends with him alone in his throne room. Still, uh, he has gained effectively nothing. Right. And he is he has at, at the cost of a death of a uh, ultimately a good man. Right. The good man is Jet Li, plays Nameless. Uh, and we oh, we we know Jet Li. We do. And uh, we certainly like him. You know, it's funny, though. I don't think I had ever seen Jet Li in anything until he started popping up in uh, some of the American films, like I want to say it was uh, that awful Lethal Weapon 4. That was the first time that, that was I it. actually yeah. saw him. And then it's just kind of off and on. He's been kind of popping up all over the place. And I really enjoy watching him. I think he's a really uh, interesting actor. And it does make me, especially like watching this and just really seeing what he can do. I want to go back and watch some of his earlier uh, fight films where he really just brings a lot of uh, that incredible martial arts to the table. Totally. I I think the first thing I saw, I mean, it was obviously Lethal Weapon and then The One uh, in 2001, and then Hero came out. So, um, but but this is when, you know, I started getting interesting, interested in just what he, uh, you know, his amazing capability uh, as a physical actor. And, and then uh, The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor came out <laughs> and... He, he, that's a terrible movie. That is a terrible movie, but he is the Dragon Emperor, and that's sad. <laughs> I enjoyed him in I The Expendables. I haven't, haven't really seeked out. I, I haven't seen any of The Expendables. I only movies. saw the first one, uh, but, you know, he was fun in it. I mean, it, it you know, is one of those, it was an action movie. It did what it needed to do, yeah. so I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, we should do a Once Upon in China uh, trilogy and do those uh, all three of those films. I'd love to kind of check those out. <laughs> Once Upon in Time... In China, Once Upon a Time in China and uh, China 2, Once Upon a Time in China 3, what about Once Upon a Time in China and America? Uh, that's right. Maybe we'll do all four. <laughs> I, I've seen, I don't think I've seen any. I haven't Have either. I seen them? I haven't either. We should do it. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> let's. How about Tony Leung as Broken Sword? Another person who's just great to watch. I mean, we've talked about him in uh, actually our listener's choice episode about uh, in the name of love, which is uh, or in the mood mm -hmm. for love. Sorry, totally wrong thing. Um, uh, in the mood for love was just such a just another just gorgeous, gorgeous film. And he was fantastic in it here. He's also just uh, amazing. And he's not a guy who is really a martial arts uh, person, but he really uh, pulls it off and he does an amazing job here. And we didn't even mention that, you know, Zhang Yimou, because this was really his first action film. He brought on action director Tony Ching to kind of help him bring all of the action to life. So I think we have to give a huge shout out to Tony Ching as far as bringing these fights together and really making some amazing stuff happen here. Um, because he makes Tony uh, Leung look like he knows what he's doing. <laughs> he sure does. <laughs> of course, it didn't keep uh, Tony from injuring his ankle. Um, when they were doing the lake fight, he uh, he hurt his ankle. And his doctor said that he was going to have to be out for 
for three weeks and he wasn't going to be able to do any wire work and it just, you know, he couldn't do any of it. And um, he ended up coming back the next day (laughs) to keep going because he's just like, no, we're going to just make it happen. And he says to this day, his ankle still has problems. You go, Tony. For the love of the art. For the team. That's right. That's the truth. (laughs) But Maggie Chung is flying snow. Ah, yes. uh, Reuniting with uh, Tony Leung from In the Mood for Love. I mean, she's just, ah, she's just gorgeous and she's just so great um, in stuff like this, uh, which is funny because this is not something that she ever has really done before. Again, like Tony, this was all new to her, but she just does such a great job. And watching her spin around in the air on the wires and everything, I mean, just she's just so stinking good at it. I have a great time watching her. And I love that Zhang Yimou like, kind of just brought this cast together of just such amazing, amazing actors. Not necessarily because um, of, you know, he, he didn't necessarily focus on it. I just want to get people who uh, know how to do the martial arts. He just found great actors and allowed his action director to kind of get these people to do those things. Uh, she is she is lovely. And uh, she's, you know, we should talk about Zheng Ziyi, uh, who I, it, it almost feels like became sort of the, the well, I don't know, the, the comparison to Gong Li is apt. Uh, but uh, those two together, I think, make a fantastic on-screen sort of sparring couple. They were just fantastically beautiful physically just watching them fight. Oh, they're great. Uh, you know, her part is uh, it's an interesting one. It's not as well-developed. Um, at, at the beginning, you're, I, you know, I was a little kind of like, who is this? Why is she around? And then you kind of go, oh, okay, she's kind of the assistant for a broken sword and she kind of you know he's her master um but there's also this little love affair that they kind of have uh, there's some interesting stuff going on with her um i i feel like i enjoy her more in uh, crouching tiger hidden dragon and more in house of flying daggers where i feel like she gets a lot more to do yeah. i think that the fight scene between her and maggie is just gorgeous here but i just don't feel like she has as much uh, as much at stake in the film so those other films yeah. i think that she's just such a key part and i just i really love what she brings uh in those films totally totally how about uh, chen daoming as the king of Jin. I, I like him. I, I don't really know much about him, but I think he's great as the emperor. I think there's something really um, uh, just kind of heavy about him. I think he just plays it perfectly. And he's also somebody who had been in uh, some of uh, Zhang Yimou's other films. He was in Coming Home um, just a few years ago. And um, uh, he's he was in Infernal Affairs 3. I know he did that first Infernal Affairs film. Uh, he ended up popping up in the third one, so... Uh, and finally, we have Donnie Yen as Long Sky. Donnie Yen is another, um, you know, full-on martial arts action star. Yeah, and it's funny. I I don't think that I really knew who Donnie Yen was when I first saw this. And I don't think – and I had seen, like, Blade Two. He was in that. I mean, he's been in a lot of stuff. And I feel like I've yeah. missed all of it. And then Rogue One comes out. And I'm like, who's this Donnie Yen guy? He's great. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Wow. I've missed a lot. I mean, you know, IMDb has him with 71 credits that I've just uh, completely missed. I mean, yeah, I just I feel so so dumb about that. He was in the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragons uh, Netflix sequel, Sort of Destiny. Um, but um, I, I still haven't watched that one. So you haven't seen any of the uh, Yip Man nope. movies? No. 
well, there you go. I know. I have a lot to catch up on. Um, but what I think is so fun about him is he and Jet Li have apparently just a massive fight in Once Upon a Time in China 2. And um, it sounded to me like they had actually cast somebody else or were considering to cast somebody yeah. in the role of Sky in this particular film. And Jet Li was just like, he told uh, Zhang, you know, uh, it would be really fun to cast Donnie in this film and particularly in this role. So he and I can kind of continue this rivalry, uh, you know, and keep the fight going from when we were doing it in Once Upon a Time in China too. And they did. And so they dropped the other actor and went with Donnie and they ended up just kind of having this amazing sword fight in here. And, um, and what I loved about it is they, um, it, well, one, it sounded like they, they got to do a lot of kind of improv coming up with the the way that they were going to do the fight along with uh, Tony Ching. And um, and I love that this is the one where we get the opportunity to kind of do that black and white, um, you know, where they're thinking about the fight. And it's, it's something that I, I've seen so few times, but I love the whole concept and, uh, you know, where they kind of watch the whole thing play out in the he- their heads before they actually go to action. And it's such a neat concept. Yeah. See, now, why is it that that works for me? That absolutely works for me, but having the king do essentially the same thing does not. Yeah, I don't know. Or or why Tom Cruise does it and it doesn't work. Well, I know why that didn't work. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the production a little bit, uh, shall we? Getting it made. It was, a, it was a grueling one. I mean, they shot it for six months kind of all over China. Um, you know, I wrote a few of the names down. Let's see if I can get them. Uh, Dan Jin Shaw, a desert in western China. They shot there. They shot at the lakes of the Qi Shua province. They shot at the forests of Inner Mongolia. Um, they, um, the, um, when they're filming at the lake, uh, it was, I think, about three weeks or so. And... Um, and some of the locations that as they were kind of going around, they they actually had spots where they had, would have to drive two and a half to three hours just to get to a place that, where they'd get out, go film a few shots, and then head back in <laughs> just to get the shots. I, I mean, I love that they did that because it really sells it. You get just incredible, incredible locations in this film. As as somebody who loves movies, I know you 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 love that. But as somebody who I know is right now in the middle of a massive pre production schedule, as a producer, what do you think about that? It's you know that it exhausts me thinking about something like that, and the amount of uh, vehicles you would need to kind of get people from place to place, <laughs> especially when you see the number of extras they have. Oh my goodness! Not to mention finding places to feed everybody and and getting the portajohns out there, and I mean everything that goes into uh, a production like that. I mean it's just so complex. I can only imagine how difficult it would be. But uh, you know they pull it off, and you don't have to think about those sorts of things when you're watching it thank goodness i am i am now going to be thinking about especially in that lake scene where do they go to the bathroom (laughs) exactly i'm going to be thinking about that things that you think about (laughs) yes when you're uh, producing projects um what what i found interesting about the the locations and everything i mean aside from the amazing locations is the set that they built for the up in i guess hongdian they built the king's palace there and it apparently was the largest movie set ever made in china at least at the time i don't know if anything's beat it since then but um i mean and that is a massive massive palace i mean you see him climbing up those stairs and those stairs go all the way from the left of your screen to the right of your screen, and you're in a just incredible wide shot. 
Yeah, that's an amazing uh, shot. But again, uh, talk about working in service to his style as a filmmaker. He loves those wide shots. It's amazing. It's all the world building. And this is a filmmaker uh-huh. who, who thrives on world building. Cinematography, uh, he worked with Christopher Doyle. We have talked about Christopher Doyle, uh, obviously, on this show uh, when we talked about In the Mood for Love. He's an Australian. He lives or he, he's worked uh, a number of times with... Um, uh, with Zhang Yimou and uh, Wong Kar Wai, and he's 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 a good he's a good uh, camera guy. We like him, but I have a really hard time seeing this as anything other than a Zhang Yimou film. It, it that's a that's an interesting point. I mean, I mean, in the mood for love, obviously, also has an incredible look, the incredible colors. Uh, yeah, but it is interesting because this film, when you watch it and you compare it with the last two films that we've talked about, and even though they were you know ten years before this or you know, or more, they still all have a very very similar look. So I would agree with you. It does feel very much like a Zhang Yimou film, not like a Christopher Doyle film. Um, obviously, we've talked about some of the stunning effects, the in terms of stunts. Um, We've talked about the you know the flying and the wires, but there there was some uh, we we've got some some CG in there, right? Yeah, all the arrows when they're shooting all the arrows around and everything. I mean, they do a great job with the CG as far as like cleaning up the wire work and all of that sort of stuff. But man, I don't know, man. I mean, it's really cool seeing all those arrows <laughs> flying through the sky. But there were a few times where we're like riding along on the back of the arrow as it's flying through the air, and it just looks so <laughs> you didn't like bad. that. Oh, it's just some of them were just terrible. Did you have an easier time with that or with the sequence where, um, you know, he's out there with Maggie on on the roof and they're sweeping away the arrows as they come down upon the house? I had an easier time with that, actually. Did you? Yeah, I mean, that's the part that gave me trouble. It was just a little bit. It was tough to look. All of it was. Yeah, all of the stuff with the arrows is a little uh, artificial, but it still is entertaining to watch. I just, you know, the the shots where we're right there in the arrows flying down. That's what bugged me. But it made up for it when you get to see the 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 student get the arrow to the head, which is a terrible thing to say, but. (laughs) (laughs) You're so dark. (laughs) But I was just like, damn, they went there and. Wow, that was kind of crazy. <laughs> and that was a cool sequence, too, because these students are getting hit with these arrows, but because of the strength of the Zhu province, they all came back to do their calligraphy to, to prove the point that the, the brush is mightier than the arrow. Right. And in fact, for, for at least some of them, it wasn't. <laughs> they weren't doing it. Those were B students. <laughs> oh, B students, right. Okay. The, uh, we got to just jump before we wrap on to the music. Tan Dun uh, is, uh, is responsible for the music along with, oh my God, Yitzhak Perlman. What a combination. And I was <laughs> so surprised, but I think it works so well to kind of blend just the, the beautiful uh, violin of Yitzhak Perlman playing in this score. I mean, just the amazing, like uh, just the, the, tugging at your heartstrings sort of music just beautiful 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 stuff plus i guess there's a a, a japanese drummer group called kodo that they do all the mm-hmm. amazing drum work in here and it's just i mean it's the music just from beginning to end is great tan dun uh, said a few things uh, first about music, he said, music is words or meaning that the director wants to say but has no way to say it, which I, I, I liked that, you know, he's, he 
kind of this is how the composer kind of helps the director find those words. Um, but then what he also said in working in this particular film is that he wanted to be able to uh, have people hear the color coming out of his music. And so for every different part, he kind of shifted the music a little bit to try to make it tie in with whatever particular color that uh, sequence was really emphasizing, whether it's uh, whether it's the blue or the green or the red or the yellow or the white. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. And I loved that he actually worked to kind of do that. So I'm a huge fan of the the score of this. It's just really beautiful stuff. This is one you really can't. I think between this and, and Crouching Tiger, you can just, you know, shuffle them together. And it's it's just gorgeous all the way through. Really is. Yeah. Uh, I, I really love the sense that you get from this. How did it do at award season? It did. Uh, it did well for itself. Again, Zhang Yimou got nominated uh, for Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. However, they lost to Nowhere in Africa, which uh, is a film I have seen, and I really loved that film. Um, I have, I find it a little hard to argue that loss because I thought that film was really powerful. But if you look at how the film did um, over in Asia, it uh, really did well. The two big awards in China are the uh, Golden Rooster Awards, where Zhang Yimou won Best Director, and the Hundred Flowers Awards, where the movie uh, won Best Picture, jointly with a couple other films. Uh, But then you look at the Hong Kong Film Awards. I mean, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, um, Best Cinematography, which Christopher Doyle won, Best Editing, Best Art Direction, which won, Best Costume and Makeup Design, which won, Best Action Choreography, which won, Best Original Score, which won, Best Original Song, Best Sound Design, which won, Best Visual Effects, which won. This was just like the film that year at the Hong Kong Film Awards. So... Um, so kudos to it. I mean, it, it really did well for itself and for, you know, for kind of a, you know, a martial arts film, I think that, uh, that kind of surprised a lot of people that there's actually a lot more going on with this film than just, uh, you know, a, a Kung Fu action sort of thing. That's a, that's really interesting. Um, and it, it holds up well. It's a, you know, it's a film I, I, watched it again and I feel like I'm, I really connect to it and maybe again, because I watched it back to back with. Raise the Red Lantern. Did the numbers bear out its success? Well, Zhang Yimou's first foray into Wuxia cost either $17 million or $31 million to make, depending on your sources. <laughs> um, maybe it cost $17 million and then they spent an additional $14 million in prints and advertising. It's really hard to say. But uh, for the purposes of uh, uh, what I do here, I'm going to go with the higher number. And in today's dollars, that means it costs about $41.5 million. The film was released in China October 24th, 2002, then Hong Kong a few months later. Miramax bought the U.S. distribution rights and, as uh, as Harvey is known to do sometimes, delayed the release of it six times. It, it just Ugh. took forever for them to get off their duff with this thing. They finally released it August 27th, 2004, opposite Anacondas. The Hunt for the Blood Orchid, everybody's favorite sequel. Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2, everybody's other favorite <laughs> sequel. And Suspect Zero. It actually took the intervention of Disney executives and Quentin Tarantino to get the Weinsteins to release it finally. Um, and Quentin Tarantino, um, because of his passion for the film, he lent his name to the promotional material so that it was actually released as Quentin Tarantino Presents to help create a bigger box office draw. Um, Hero went on to become one of the top films in Hong Kong the year it was released, and for its U.S. release, went straight to number one at the box office. Its opening weekend was the second highest opening weekend for a foreign language film. Only Passion of the Christ opened better, 
Um, it was actually the the highest grossing uh, foreign film. I think it was the first foreign film to hit number one at the box office on its opening weekend or something crazy like that. Wow. Uh, it went on to make 53.7 million domestically and 123.9 million everywhere else, giving it a grand total of 177.6 million or just shy of 238 million in today's dollars. It is among the <laughs> yeah, it, it's among the highest grossing foreign language films and martial arts films in North American box office history. In the end, the film made an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.9 million. So, nice to see for this foray uh, into a new type of storytelling for Zhang Yimou that it uh, did so well. The uh, the the one note at, that I found as I was looking for the, the poster art, did you notice the change they made to the Quentin Tarantino Presents version of the American release of the poster? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's a bit of controversy. They replaced the sword in Nameless's hand. Uh, from the traditional uh, Chinese sword to a katana, Japanese katana, which which causes no end of uproar. You don't, you just don't, that's the, you don't want to be on the business end of that particular sword fit. It's just, it's a it's a silly change to make. Uh, clearly, they're just trying to tie it so into stupid. Kill Bill and, and Quentin Tarantino. It's just one of those odd little things that I guess they say, hey, let's do it because audiences will love it. You know what would be fun? Let's completely change 2,200 years of culture. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Andy, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can find our profile, or you can just swipe up on your uh, uh, podcast device of choice, and uh, you'll see the link to this film in Flickchart right there. Tap on it. You'll go straight to the film, and we can can rank it together. Go on. Let's do it. We'll do it together. It'll be a a little uh, date. All right. First up, we have Hero. This is going to be a tough one. Joe versus the volcano. I I know that it's I, I oh, Andy. Do we really want to to relegate this film? It's beautiful film. Do we want to relegate it to the bottom half of the chart? I don't know. What are you going to do? Is that our strategy? <laughs> that sucks. We've done it before, but that sucks. It's starting to feel bad. They're both great movies. I am going to choose, um, I think I'm going to choose Hero. You know, this is, I would instantly pick Joe versus the Volcano because I would watch it first. That being said, there is so much strength in Hero. Just just the the visual tapestry that Zhang Yimou puts in front of us. Even though I'd watch Joe first, I am going to side with you on Hero because of the artistry that went into it. <laughs> oh, man. You had to let me see. I'm cutting like five minutes of I, me oh, I breathing. I know. I just wanted to do oh, that for you, Andy. You're a <laughs> snot. Oh, I'm awesome. <laughs> oh, what's next? All right, next up, we have Hero. This is this is a really perfect pairing. Hero or Raise the Red Lantern. Hero, hands <laughs> now, down, absolutely. Now Hero. I would say Raise the Red Lantern. Uh, I know because let's that is my it. favorite Jang Yimou film. So uh, yeah, let's. All right, ready? You get the katana. I get the traditional and more appropriate <laughs> Chinese sword. Okay, ready? One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. I am sorry. No, you're not. I am not. <laughs> you are not sorry at all. All right. Next up, we have Hero or uh, Mother. Oh boy, that's oh. a great movie. I would. Uh, oh, this is one where I would definitely watch Hero first. But I'm going to pick Mother. Are you really? Yes. I think I would actually pick Hero first on this one, but I'm pretty uh, loosey-goosey on this one. 
So if you want to go with mother, I'll go with mother. I I would pick mother. Okay. I'm stick with right. mother. That's a really great film. Uh, Hero or Blood Simple? Huh. A little early Coen Brothers action there. Ooh. I, I'm probably I'm probably hero on this one. I'm uh, yeah. I'm I'm in this zone with these movies right now where I'm feeling uh, I could go either way with a lot of these choices. But yeah, I think I will go hero on this one too. Hero or a uh, little Kubrick, The Killing. I love The Killing. I think if it wasn't for some of the uh, the narration that can drive me a little crazy sometimes, I'd probably pick it. But I think I'm going to go with the hero. With hero. Yeah, I'm going to go with. I'll, I'll go with hero. Hero or the treasure of Sierra Madre. Ooh, little Frank, Man, his Frank when Dobbs. he when he goes crazy at mm-hmm. the end. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a strong sequence. I'm going to the yeah, the treasure of Sierra Madre for me. Yeah, I think so. Me too. All right. Next up, we have Hero or Intacto. Well, there's a great film that hasn't popped up in quite a while. Wow. When did we talk about that? Right. That was a great film. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, I'm going to go with that. I am too. Hero or In the Mood for Love. We have had more foreign films in this particular wow. battle than uh, we've had in a long time. It's a really exciting uh, little run. I'm In the Mood for Love here. Yeah, me too. Hands down. Hero or The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? <laughs> Hero, please. Hero. Uh, diving Bell and the Butterfly for me. It was a great film. I, I've now seen it twice. I know. Once it's, it's to swear that I would never see it again, <laughs> and once because you made me. It's great. Uh, it is really great. So I, I will give you Hero on this one, because okay. I, I really just really enjoy both of these films. Well, that leaves Hero at 116 on our flick chart. Probably could have been a little higher, but it got knocked yeah. down early. And uh, But you know what? We still have so many great films on our chart. All the films that are surrounding it, I just absolutely love. So I think it's just yeah. a really strong spot. And and the fact is, we're cruising up toward, you know, I, I mean, how, what does this make for the number of straight yeah. up films that we've talked about? Like two, we're, we're up at two. This is 290. 290? Yeah. So we're pushing, uh, we're pushing 300 soon. So, I mean, look at this. We're cruising up toward 300 movies that we have talked about. And there are only five of them that are really, really bad. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay, maybe there's more than five, but the rest of them are really great. So yeah. I, we got to stop feeling guilty about that. We do. We do. It's not the women. <laughs> it's not the women. Absolutely. You're right about All that. Right. Uh, what's this do for your letterbox ranking over at letterbox.com slash the next reel? I, as much as I love it, it does have a little bit of a lull in it. So this one gets the four and a half from, from me. Strong four and a half for me. Glass definitely half full. Definitely one that I would love to watch again because it's just, I mean, yeah. it really, it's just a glorious film to look at. And the blue Blu-ray looks great. <laughs> yes, it actually has finally. a wonderful Huzzah. transfer. I don't have to complain about that anymore. So no critical Amazon review for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so we've alluded to uh, our last film in the Zhang Yimou series that we're doing this year. Uh, where do we go from here? Yeah, we're going to be wrapping up the uh, Zhang Yimou series, which has been a great kind of look at his career. But we're looking at his newest film that is going to be opening here at the box office uh, any day now. In fact, by the time you hear this, it may have already opened. But we're looking at The Great Wall. And uh, in context of this film and kind of how The Great Wall got built and everything, um, I'm curious where this kind of fictional uh, story goes with these uh, these dragons and, and why the Great Wall got built. So it'll be an interesting one to see if it's a really kind of big stumble for him 
or if there's more to this film than it appears. All right. Until then, I got to go to bed. Okay. I've got some golden leaves to go gather. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. I got a one star uh, uh, out of out of five. Ooh. <laughs> got a one out of seven. <laughs> this film is unrelentingly awful. To begin with, the martial arts sequences are pretentious and silly to the point of being unwatchable. I've been a fan of Chinese martial arts movies since getting hooked on Shaw Brothers films in the mid-1970s, and I understand that some suspension of disbelief is required, but this film is completely over the edge. Scene after scene of ridiculous flying swordsmen walking and fighting on water characters, making cow eyes at each other to express deep emotional soulfulness, and silly fight scenes backdropped by fluttering panels of colored silk. Of course, because there is zero character development, it's hard to give a damn about any of it. It all just plays as if affected and goofy. The ultimate point of the film is that violent oppression in the service of totalitarian authority, raining down arrows on schools, the murder of heroes, and presumably crushing democracy protesters under tank treads are to be applauded if performed in the service of unified central government. One can't help but think that Lenny Reifenstahl would approve. Awful, awful, awful. Spend your time and money elsewhere. Yeesh. Woof. Feels like we saw a different movie. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I've got a one star that uh, <laughs> I think these people might have uh, uh, talked before they wrote their reviews. Uh, this is a one star by Dominic who says it's not that good. Sorry. Great actors, okay fights. If you make it to the end, you'll realize it's just a thinly veiled propaganda film. I have seen many martial arts movies, good, bad, old, and new. So far, this is the only one I wish I could unwatch. Ooh, ouch. Yeah. Ah. Uh, Damn. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.